0: Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking Art Director Mike Pekovic. Hey, Ed. Senior Editor Matt Kenny, Hey, Mike. And special guest Australian Turner Richard Raffin. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome, Richard. Uh, Richard's on later. That was Mike, Sorry. in case you couldn't tell. Richard's going to be highly offended, Mike, and I'm sure he'll never write for the magazine again. Uh, now, on to the show. Uh, if you like this, uh, this podcast, be sure to spread the word to your fellow woodworkers. Maybe stop by our iTunes page and leave a five-star comment, and uh, just uh, let us know you support the show constructive criticism is always welcome as well. Uh, You can also go to iHeartRadio and do a search for Shop Talk Live there. That's another outlet where you can catch the podcast. Uh, Now, before we move on to answering questions, I have some uh, breaking Shop Talk Live tool news to report on. Um, This sounds really exciting. It's very exciting. So uh, later on in today's show, we're going to have uh, Turner Richard Raffin on, and that's because he's here for the entire week shooting a video series that accompanies his uh, book on turning toys and I'm also shooting some shorts uh, with him. Um, And it turns out that uh, Richard uh, was able to arrange uh, through Woodworkers Emporium in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, the lending to us of a Vicmark VL150 lathe. This is like a Cadillac lathe. Thing is built like a Sherman tank. It's a small Um, lathe though. It's small, but it's, I mean, it's just heavy as all get out and i know this because i was the one who had to unpack it um with bill Pack, and uh it's a beautiful lathe and um before we send it back to woodworkers emporium um, we figured we would offer it up to any of our readers who might be in the market for a really sweet lathe um it normally retails for uh 2300 bucks and they're discounting it to two grand because it is slightly used, but it's used by Richard. And I'm going to have Richard sign the lathe. Cool. So if anybody's in the v- market for a really high end lathe, um, send an email to shoptalk at taunton.com with Richard's lathe in the subject line. And uh, it's basically first come, first served. So if you're interested, uh, shoot us an email. There's a blog post up um, in slash blogs about this as well. But don't
1: post to the blog. Send an email.
0: Send an email. Because write your name. That's right.
1: Write my name and no, my address. No, do not write that. <laughs> on the back of an envelope and
0: put a $100 bill in it. And what are you, click and clack? That's right. So, um, well,
2: I said this lady was small, but what I meant, it was, it's got a short bed. In terms of power, or the swing? Um, I don't really know. I mean, what is this I have this
0: all like? of the specs on the uh, the blog post. Right. Um, and it's the title of the blog post is something to the effect of Own a Lathe, christened by Richard Raffin. Actually, I think that's the exact name of the blog. Um, and I've got everything, the swing,
2: the, the specs on the motor, um, everything. It's and for uh, two grand, I want more than something I can turn pens with or something like that.
0: Well, no, I mean, you can do
2: Good well, you have to
1: table. understand, this is an Australian one, so it's not an American pin you'd be turning. It'd be a giant Australian pin. Right, and because it's so. Australian,
0: <laughs> the motor spins in the opposite direction that you would normally right. expect. <laughs> um, but I should point out that we are not, Final Working's not making a dime off of this. We just figured, like, hey, you know what, let's offer this up to readers, um, christened by the master. Cool. So... Uh, Shop talk at taunton.com, Richard's lathe in the subject line if you're interested, and special thanks to Woodworkers Emporium in Las Vegas for graciously loaning us uh, this lathe. Uh, With that, uh, let's move on to a couple of questions. Uh, The first one this week is from Matt, and Matt wrote, not our Matt, uh, I was wondering about your thoughts on the pros and cons of building versus purchasing a router table for the typical weekend woodworker. There seems to be quite a continuum from the Doug Stowe special to the cast iron behemoths available for purchase on the market today. Um, It would be
1: quite ironic if I were to ask that question. I think
0: it would, considering you filmed a video workshop on building a router table. Yeah, that's right. Yeah,
1: that (laughs) would be. uh, Um, Mike, you want to go first, or you want me to go first? Uh,
2: I mean, it's a good question. Really, I have a router table. Um, I had a shop built table for years it just lived underneath my bench i'd pull it out clamp it to my bench top stick my fixed space router in there whenever i needed to use it and today i have a a manufactured um, bench top router table it's great but i don't use it that often i don't know it may come out maybe once every couple months i bet so yeah uh, you know it's with that in mind i'd say eh, start out make make one if you have a router spare router, make one, stick it in there. If you use it a lot, then maybe think about maybe making a bigger one?
1: Maybe. Or... I, I would say, yeah, I, I wouldn't buy one initially because you don't exactly know what you want. And yeah. router tables are one of the things where there's just an overwhelming number of features available on them. Yes. I would probably start with something like Doug Stowe. This the, the per- Matt, who wrote this, actually mentioned Doug Stowe, right? Mm-hmm. So Doug Stowe has a really nice, basic, simple router table. It's a piece of plywood, which is probably almost as old as Doug is. I hope he doesn't hear this. <laughs> um, and he has a, you know, he has a little Porter Cable router bolted to it underneath it, and uh, the fence is just a pivoting fence. One end fits into a hole on the table, pivots there, and he locks the other end down with a hand clamp. Doug uses it all the time and uh... he uh... wouldn't be using it if it was uh... you know wasn't up to the job and, yeah you know but it is um, i would think you would want to start with something simple like that and then just figure out what it is that you do with a router table what you're going to do specifically and then you can decide well is the stuff that i'm doing do i need to buy one uh... to get what i need or could i make one personally i ended up making one because of the stuff that i do with it most which is uh... like route stop stop dados and wall cabinets and things like that i knew that i could make a table that would allow me to do that really easily whereas buying a table and trying to retrofit it to do what I, the stuff that i do would be harder right so i ended up making a big table uh to do that
2: you know what i get before i got a router table what's that A router lift a router lift router lift and what would you put it in? Is- I'd make a table. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, okay, that's what you're saying. Yeah, but that's what uh, I, I thought two.
2: Was... No, if I'm spending money, I mean, I can make a router table, a yes. really good router table for pretty cheap. Absolutely. I yep. can't make a really good router lift even if I knew how, I probably wouldn't want to do it. Right. But in terms of what a router lift adds in, in terms of versatility, accuracy to the whole router table experience, I think is is far more than what you're going to get for for a manufactured router table.
1: Yeah, I agree. Once I started to uh, go beyond that initial router table, yeah. the first thing I would get is a router lift. I went the route of using a uh, a router with above table adjustments built into it.
2: Right. That Triton plunge router.
1: Yeah, which yeah. worked pretty well, but it's not as nice as a as having a, pl- a router lift. Right. And the other thing what the only other thing I would say is if whether you buy one or make one, the thing you want to do is, unless it's cast iron, cast iron doesn't have this problem, but I would go back and make sure that the top has supports not only around the perimeter but also through the middle, and that will keep it flat through the years.
2: Yes, and yeah. if you're making a router table, it's pretty easy to add the cross bracing and supports to whatever your MDF or plywood top is to keep it dead flat. Yes. In a lot of manufactured tables, you're spending a lot of money for will sag on you if you put a big heavy router or router lift in there.
1: Yes. We've that we've that's borne out in previous testing that we've done. Yes.
2: And why not just
0: do the uh the old um router table in the table saw side feed? Sure, you could do that,
2: absolutely. Side extension rather. Yeah. 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 Or do what Garrett Hack does, take your router, clamp it in your vice. <laughs> yeah. That's your router table. That's your router <laughs> table. That's right.
0: Um Yankee Thrift. Yes. Uh, I
1: took a sixteen inch Oliver Joiner and I drilled a hole in it on one side and put my router in it, and that's my router table.
2: Step one, buy a 12-inch (laughs) joiner. Step two, drill a hole in it.
0: All right, well, the next question comes from Charlie, and Charlie wrote, I'm in the process of planning a home renovation, and I'm realizing that creating space for a shop is expensive. If I can cut back from the shop, I can save money on building and use that money to buy the sorts of tools and machinery I really want but then I wouldn't have space for the big stuff that I'm tempted to buy. I'm interested in advice on finding the right balance there and in any advice on ways to make a small space work well. Well, first of so, all, he's come to the wrong place for balance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's not, no one here is interested
1: in balance. You um, want a minimum of 4,000 square feet. Right. Um, well, Mike, you, ha- you turned your, shop, your garage into a shop.
2: Yeah, that's a small two-car garage yeah. shop. And it works for me. It's I would like a bigger shop. So uh, it's tough. I mean, to balance, you know, uh, getting a, a smaller shop in terms of is in this case where you have an option for starting bigger. You know, if I have my choice between starting small and cramming it with some expensive tools or building a big shop and not being able to afford the tools I want right away – Go big first, machines later.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: Yeah, because it's real
1: easy. I mean, it's less expensive now to add that extra square footage than it would be to go back and expand Uh, it. Whatever this is, a detached building or it's a whatever. And you can always save up money to get the machines you want later. So that's what
0: I would do. You get the best of both worlds. You get the big shop and the big machines. Right. And make sure you have a tall ceiling because I have literally like six and... I don't know. I think my ceilings are six foot, eight inches. <laughs> yeah.
1: Because yeah, one of the things you got to think oh, of, your, your shop isn't just, it's not a place where your sh- where your tools are held. Your shop is a tool, you know? Yes. And I, f- I first realized that when uh, I had lighting put in my shop. And all of a sudden I could see really well and I realized that this space, it wasn't just a space containing things. It was... It was a tool itself. We don't want to get too Heideggerian here about, you know, uh, how you... Too, it, too what now? Heideggerian. Anyways. Okay. <laughs> All right, professor. All right. <laughs> um, about how you relate to your shop space. But it is... So you got to think about that. So I would think you want the best tool you can get here, which would be more space, you
2: know? Yeah, I mean, Charlie is in a enviable enviable position because he actually has the luxury of determining how big his shop can be. A lot of us are stuck in a finite space, whether it's right. a garage, a basement, a room in your house, and you make do with it. And if your question is, is there any advice on how to make efficient use of, a, of this space you're in, um, the answer is there's some good answers to that. In fact, our tools and shops issue coming up, we have an article on making good use of whatever space you have, everything from Chris Bexford's bigger shop to my two-car garage shop to um, Rob Percaro's shop which is in essence a uh, a room in his house literally and he really packs it in there. Packs it in and uses yeah. efficiency, everything from a sharpening station to his workbench to his dust collection to lumber storage. He's figured out how to make a small space work for him and he's done a really good job with that.
0: I think the key here is uh, figuring out how to negotiate with your spouse to get the two car garage. Mike? Yeah. Oh, I have a two-car garage shop, too. Was it that easy? Are you kidding me? You had no negotiations to go through?
2: I was a woodworker when we met. And Ugh. so the very first house we owned was a wood shop in the garage. And ever since then, Ugh. that's that's always been the case. Because I, I, gotta start
0: I early, a subterranean I'd... shop. I envy people <laughs> <laughs> who are above ground and see daylight. <laughs> Gosh. All right, well, let's move on to uh first segment of the day. And that's actually going to be uh, the answer Uh, of last week's audio shop stumper, and um, on our last episode, that would be number 42, we posed an audio stumper that was a little different this time around. We chose to play an audio excerpt of an interview with a particularly famous woodworker and asked you, the audience, to tell us who it was. Now, from among all the correct answers we got, we've randomly selected one listener to receive a set of Rockler bench cookies, but before that, let's listen to a few seconds of last week's shop stumper.
3: Here he is. I feel that uh, there's a spirit in trees that's, that's very deep. And I'm somewhat of a druid that way. I, I, especially when it comes to something extraordinary, I find the spirit just bouncing up and down in, in, the, in the grain of a tree.
0: Now, if you guessed George Nakashima, you were correct. And our winners selected randomly from among all the correct answers we received via email how was... Many, this, how many were
1: there? correct answers. Oh, God, there were tons.
0: Either. Because I had um, uh, released that little, uh, or Steve Scott had blogged that video that he discovered from National Geographic oh, of George yeah. talking and he, in that video, which is not where I pulled the audio. I pulled it from mm. a different video. Uh, but in that video, George mentions the whole comment about, you know, I'm a little bit of a druid. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> and he said the same thing in the audio that I posted. So I made it an easy one this yeah, week. that's I'd, cool. You know, once in a while, you just got to throw people a bone. Um, So the winner selected randomly from among all the correct answers we received was, drum roll please, David Mulvey. Congratulations, David. Incidentally, when I first saw your name, I thought for a moment that it was my high school English teacher writing in. His name is Dan Mulvey, pretty close. Uh, Anyhow, well done, David. Um, So moving on, we have another Dan writing in and uh, this Dan says, I'm considering buying a Lee Nielsen number four bench plane. And I'm wondering if the 55-degree frog would be just as useful for everyday smoothing as the 45-degree frog. I, I hate having to buy and then swap out frogs every time I play in different grains. Any suggestions? I already rehabbed a Stanley number 4 with a Lee Nielsen blade, but recently tried a Lee Nielsen smoother, and yikes, what a difference. I have the solution. Buy two Lee Nielsen smoothers, one with a 45-degree degree frog and another with a 55 degree frog done done there, and yeah. done that's the solution right there Hey, Next. a mere 700 yeah. bucks and you're all set <laughs> moving on a question from <laughs> uh,
1: well I th- I actually I think there are two answers for this gentleman all right uh, answer number one mm-hmm. keep your Stanley with the 45 degree bed and your Lee Nielsen replacement blade use that as your everyday smoother and then two Buy the new Lee Nielsen in addition and get it with a 50 or a 55-degree frog. Mike has a 55. I got a 50 on my—we both have a 4.5 with the high-angle frogs, right? Yes.
2: I also have a Lee Nielsen with a 45-degree frog, but I had also bought a 50-degree frog for my number 4 to go along with my 55-degree frog in my four and, a half and my 4.5 and my 45-degree frog in my Stanley— Number I have four. no idea what
1: Mike is talking about at this point. <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> well, what I um, the bottom line is I've I've tried out Bottle all out these planes? options. Uh, so my answer is yeah. if You have a, a Stan- first. He's
1: going to give us the humble brag about yeah. all the tools mm-hmm. he owns. <laughs> no,
2: so you have a Stanley with a number four uh, Stanley number four with an aftermarket blade. Awesome. Um, if you've noticed a big difference between that and a Lee Nielsen number four, hmm. Yeah, there shouldn't be a huge difference. A, a difference is good. A difference, definitely yeah. a difference. Um, okay, so I put a fifty-degree frog in my Lee Nielsen number four, thinking that that was still going to be my everyday hand plane. I ended up using my Lee Nielsen number five with a forty-five-degree frog as my everyday hand plane because for some reason I didn't like. 50 degree frog in my number four as much, so I ended up putting and I also didn't see enough benefit, it was yeah, tougher to push. Uh, the, the depth adjustment is trickier Is trickier because the more vertical the blade is embedded, the more effective change there is for the depth adjuster. Yeah, the, the quicker
1: it gets deep, right? Too deep, right? Yeah, so and I, the camber if you camber your blade, it's more it's also, dramatic.
2: yes, the more effective camber whenever you camber. So for those reasons, I put the 45 back in my Lee Nielsen number four. My four and a half with the 55 degree frog, I bought that mainly for quarter sawn white oak and I found that didn't do that good of a job. So that never really came out of my case for much of anything until I put a back bevel on that, like a 10 degree back bevel, so I'm playing at 65 degrees. That works really, really well. So here's my answer. <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh man.
2: Okay, get get your get a Lee Nielsen number four with a forty five degree frog because that is an awesome everyday plane. Yes. And there is a difference between a Stanley and a Lee Nielsen. That's gonna be your everyday plane. Don't get another frog. It's a pain in the butt to change out. Get another blade and put a back bevel on that when you mm. want to tackle tricky grain. Nice oh, professor. Yes, and you're gonna you. save some money and then if you really like the high angle and later on you got some more money you want to invest in say a four-and-a-half with a 55-degree frog, go for that. But in the meantime, get a, bait, get a blade, learn how to back-bevel, because that, that does have a significant impact yeah. on what you can handle with it.
1: I agree. I mean, for everyday use, a 45-degree frog is what you want. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right.
2: Yeah. Question, gentlemen.
0: Have either of you attempted to turn a bowl? Uh, College I, antics excluded.
2: <laughs> then no. <laughs> I have. I, I've turned a bowl or two.
0: Oh, really? Sure.
2: Oh, so you I think you're think up I... to the up to the task, Mike? Do you? Up to the task. Um, I don't consider myself a turner.
0: Okay. okay. Well, I ask because we have a turner on hand, and uh, we have Richard Raffin here, as I promised in the beginning of the show, all the way um, from Australia, all the way from Canberra, Australia. And uh, Asa and I uh, sat down with him a little while ago, and uh, we've got some tape to roll here of. Um, a little bit about Richard's background a few questions on getting started in turning um, a little bit on sharpening this that and the other thing um, so I say we roll the tape here he is the master himself Richard Raffin all right we're here with Asa Christiana and Richard Raffin who happens to be with us for the entire week uh, shooting a new um, companion DVD for his turning toys book as well as a few shorts for wood, fine dot com, and we figured we'd grab Richard for twenty or thirty minutes, um, peel him away from the camera, and uh, pester his brain with a variety of questions. Uh, so, Asa, you you drafted a list of.
4: Don't don't give away my secrets. No, this is all won't. off the top of my head. I'm a I'm a, a gifted raconteur, and uh, um, this is all part of working Richard like a rented mule. Which is the theme of his week here in Connecticut So normally, I know the guys we have on Normally I've met them before But I had never actually met Richard before yesterday, I think And that's sort of his fault For living on the other side of the planet Where water goes down the toilet in the wrong direction And they celebrate Christmas in the heat of winter I mean, uh, summer, didn't make sense so welcome, Richard Raffin. Thank, to you, find thank
3: you, thank you, thank um, you. Your fault for not having asked me earlier, really.
4: <laughs> it is. It's, it's our fault. So how long is the plane flight here? That's what everyone wants to know.
3: Oh, generally around 14 hours across the Pacific, and then uh, you've got to go across the, this continent. What's that, four or five hours? Yeah, that's Three right. Three hours you have to spend in San Francisco.
4: How many, oh, for the layover? For sort. the
3: layover, yes.
4: How many times have you made that trip? Oh, you'd think
3: absolutely no idea probably at least twice 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 a year two return trips so that would be maybe um eight crossings a year i suppose we
4: didn't richard was trying to get a peek at some of our questions before we started but that we wanted to have this exact thing happen mm-hmm. where he's put on the spot and uh really left grasping at words so a mission accomplished <laughs> can i set
0: the scene with a question i wanted to ask it's, yeah go ahead I didn't put it on here but uh Usually the thing that I like to ask most craftsmen when I speak with them is how, how they found their craft. Uh, I know you, I did a little bit of research on you before the podcast and I, you had a quote in another podcast you were on recently where you basically said you were in the right place at the right time in the early 70s. Um, but I'm wondering as to the details of how you found the lathe.
3: Oh, well, being in the right place at the right time was to do with the career path. Um, how I took it up is a different matter altogether perfect. So um, I took it up. Um, I I really did jump in the deep end, uh, knowing absolutely nothing about the craft other than it had tools with rather long handles and bits of wood went on a lathe. But I wasn't even really quite sure what a lathe was, I think, other than it spun bits of wood. So uh, when I've been looking for a change of lifestyle, my uh sister when we were discussing with the family kind of what i might do would i do pottery be a plumber i looked at running a picture framing business and uh, nicola said oh you could do wood turning i said yep i'll do that are and you kidding me that's it that, and that was that was <laughs> it <laughs> you could go to dougie hart down the road from where she'd done her ceramics uh some of the ceramics training and um and so I went along to him and, uh, with a bit of difficulty, persuaded him to take me on. So I, I paid to be there for a year. And what, and had, you, what he, had you been doing right before I'd that? i have been selling wines before that. In oh, kind right. of, You're in, like, your late 20s at this point? I was in—I was 26. Okay. Yep. So
4: selling wines is a wonderful pursuit that you could carry with you, at least the imbibing and the drinking of wines. Well,
3: it was—I could have been selling ladies' underwear, really. You know, we were oh. selling a product. And I see. Uh, that was it. And uh, I learned a bit about it, but um, do you no, like was really... do you like
4: wine at least?
3: Oh, I did. Yes, I can't. It doesn't like me these days. so oh, much. Okay. so uh, that's it. But no, it's quite interesting. But it's it wasn't the kind of romantic thing that kind of business right. people might have thought. So
4: right. So you, what was it about turning that made you say no? That's it, right there. What What do you think Ooh, it was? No, I haven't a clue. I really, mean, it
3: just sounded right. And uh, did you have an idea went... of what it was? Nope. <laughs> no 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 I mean, I, I, I was, I'd been vaguely around the crafts because uh, my sister was uh, had her own business as uh, doing stoneware pottery and she knew a number of the very well known potters in Britain and had trained with them so that was the only kind of inkling I had and at the time I wanted to get out of London this is the tail end of the 60s and Okay uh, you're in Great Britain still at this so point So I was in Great Britain at that stage and uh uh, and, I mean, it so happened that I sold my flat and everything uh, and left London on January the 1st, 1970 at six or maybe a little bit later. So I headed west with the rising sun behind me Yeah. So um, and went back to where I had been brought up, which was in Devon, and uh-huh. uh, set up in a shed in my mother's garden, uh-huh. and uh, that was it. Still in England? That was in so, England, yes, yeah. and I was there until 19... 19- uh, 1982, I moved over to Australia. Right. Uh, but we'd lived there in the late 40s, so uh, it, it wasn't entirely new. Right. And I'd also worked uh, in 1975. I went over to that side of the world looking at uh, emigrating to New Zealand, and then I discovered this huge tribe of raffens in and around Sydney. Is that true? It's true, yes, yes. Uh, I've got a, an Aussie grandfather and, and were so, you, uh,
4: would you were you related to them in
3: some? Oh way? yes, no, no, no. They had this huge welcoming party when I got there. Oh, that's nice. And uh, my mother had never mentioned all these people, so it's. Uh, <laughs> so you had
0: uh, automatic aunts and uncles and cousins. I and had
3: yes. I mean, there were. Uh, I think my father had something like thirty-six first cousins, oh my gosh. most of whom were in Australia. If was there all. a
4: reason your mother wasn't mentioning them? Um,
3: well, she, who knows? Just lost she touch. No longer with us. No, no, no. I think she probably. Uh, Yes. No, she just didn't mention them, and I didn't ask, or yeah. we didn't ask. See,
0: that's similar. When I The first time I went to see my mom's family in Cuba, I went with a big family tree, and I got into the airport in Havana, and the, all the authorities started asking me, so who's this guy on your family tree, and who's this guy? I didn't know who any of these people were. And my response was, listen, I don't know any of these people. I've never met any of them before. If you want, I'll give you a full report when I depart back for the United States. Until then, please leave me alone. Yeah. That's incredible. Built-in
4: yes. family. Well, Rich that's a that's a
0: wonderful so anyway thing to anyway, so
3: I had that kind of uh contact there and uh on that trip in seventy five i dis um i went to uh Sturt workshops just south of mittagong was a well known craft centre um sorry, not in Mittagong, which is just south of sydney and uh they had been about to write to me anyway to see if I'd go there as a craftsman in residence, so I went oh. over there two years later and really liked it and uh then uh, managed to uh, get my immigration stuff through a little bit after that uh, but again looking back it's it's almost as silly a sillier decision as jumping into wood turning in the first place because uh, I left a very good business in in England uh going to a completely new country and uh where nobody knows who you are um and uh uh, with the Australians, especially if I'd gone and said, here I am, the great me, you know, they'd have said, oh, yes, and probably I wouldn't have got off, off the ground at all. So you taught from the beginning in Australia? No, no, I, d- I didn't do any teaching until mm. um, I think I did a workshop in around 1979 I, where I was working for Highland Craft Point in Scotland and we were advising businesses, small craft businesses, so it wasn't just wood woodturners, um, but although I concentrated on those... Um, I maybe had a couple of apprentices um, uh, who were not that successful really. just They were just roughing down little bits and pieces for me in the 70s. Um, but I didn't really start teaching until I got to Australia and I did a workshop and uh, that went okay. But it wasn't part of the income. I, did, I really didn't have time to do that. How did, that how did
4: Taunton Press discover you at first? Do you
3: know? Um, I don't know, around 1978, um, Batsford asked me to do a book, and uh, the deal wasn't fantastic. Uh, I talked to them, and I'd done a, a book for John Makepeace, or was, as part of a book, which John in Makepeace in, had in done in England. In Batsford is in England yes. as well? Yeah. And so that was good. So I was very well established in Britain. And um, and um then uh I had an opportunity to come over. Oh yes, we had the um, the first turning symposium in Britain was uh, with John Makepeace at Parnham House mm-hmm. in nineteen eighty-one. An amazing furniture 81.
4: maker that everyone should look up on the web.
3: Yep, and uh, there I met David Ellsworth, who's very well known as a turner in this country, right. and um, and I heard about a turning symposium which was run by Albert Lacoffe, which was the last of the whole series he'd done in mm-hmm. Philadelphia. Still and, going on now. Um, well, he's doing different stuff, but mm-hmm. the, that series of of symposiums. Uh, and Ray Key and I both got Crafts Council grants from the British Crafts Council to mm-hmm. go over, so we went over there. And I had a manuscript, so I thought, oh, well... And I, I think I heard that John Kelsey was going to be oh yeah at this event so of the, of the Taunton Press of the Taunton Press and he was the kind of famous first editor of Taunton Press yeah. as I'm sure you know yeah um, and uh, so I went over with a manuscript in hand uh, or a yes it was a manuscript rather than a proposal and I believe there were two others with the same idea in mind and. Um, I think Ray and I were about the only people who could really use the tools at that symposium otherwise yeah. it's uh, assorted people with uh, long iron bars with little cutters on the end and uh, it wasn't impressive turning and um uh but the the Americans I think were impressed with our speed with the tools and we thought that um their speed with sanding with power looked like a good thing so the two <laughs> gradually came together and uh, what was the first thing you did? It was a that. book. It
4: was a book for the Town Press. That was very well. That was that, that. was Turning Wood. Was the first Turning Wood, and didn't was the the, wasn't book. that reissued and re, reworked?
3: Yeah, I think it's up to the third edition now. So. Mm-hmm.
4: and that came out. I think that came out. when's the most 80. recent time it came out? Oh, I don't know. In no, the 90s, I, really, I would
3: it? need notice of questions like that. Yeah, no, I, I think that. the new Turning <laughs> Wood was about only about four or five years ago. Right, right, right. That yeah. one was fresh
4: in my mind, but Richard's done. Just in, uh, probably been the most prolific author for Fine Woodworking magazine on turning. He's got articles like turn a lidded box and articles about scrapers and skew chisel basics. And he's got lots of videos and DVDs for us, and uh, lots of books as well. And his latest book is um, covers the subject of turning toys, which is a fun thing to do with your turning. You know, one question I had for you is, in this relates to turning toys, is how many bowls does any one household really need? Which I always well, they
3: need at least half a dozen in every room. I mean, they it's, do. You, know, you have to. Do you have any you have to put porcelain
4: or crockery in your house at all?
3: Well, I do, but I don't really use it. Right, you <laughs> have decent wooden bowl <laughs> around. You know. No, we we've um, um, yeah. You know, I tended to use wood. I mean, I always I used wood plates, wooden plates for thirty years, and then. Uh, went to live in the country and actually found it was more economical on water, which was extremely scarce at the time, using a dishwasher. So oh, it right. transferred to my mother's dinner service, which uh, which I've had. And uh, we still use wood whenever possible, and mm-hmm. I eat breakfast out of a wooden bowl most mornings. So uh, that's it. Not <laughs> that, made by me. I, it was made by Robin Wood I think, on a pole light, So uh, Is that right? Huh. I think anyone
4: any of your fans would be disappointed if, if that weren't true if you were you know if you weren't eating your cereal out of a wooden bowl no
3: well i do go on about it a bit so huge controversy
4: well the the toys book looks fantastic i'm just looking at i really like the selection of things that you uh, have in here we'll be adapting a little bit of this for a special fine woodworking issue on uh, some of our best turning articles and we, We'll we will give people a few excerpts from the Book and people can find that on the newsstand. But the book's got all kinds of stuff like uh toys for little kids, like little stacking rings and things and um the little game where you flip the sphere up into the cup and spinning tops and, Bill bouquet. Bill bouquet and table table skittles and um little fruit and veggies they can play with and oh a lot of wheeled. A lot of A lot of
3: wheels, yes, yes. Um as always, I like to have projects which are skill builders, so each one's slightly different or gives you a different set of techniques, but uh, it's, a, it's a really good book for learning the skew chisel. Um, yeah, that's right. Of course, in fact, I think... A although, lot of balancing. Although you can use gouges, um, you can probably uh, turn almost everything in that book with a skew chisel uh, bar, just a couple of... Uh, that's a nice. Of exercises. So, do you think
4: some questions that you're completely unprepared for, but you've been paring, preparing your whole life for these questions? So, is turning growing? Do you think as a craft? Do you have a sense of that?
3: I, th- I think it probably still is. You'd, you'd probably be better asking the people selling the tools, right? Um, I get a sense. But, um, I do hear anecdotally that yeah. it is, and you and things like the uh, the American Association of Wood Turners mm-hmm. um, Symposium. You know, they're moving up towards a couple of thousand people turning up. And then there are other, I think there's a Texas turnaround, which I believe has similar kinds of numbers. It's a good
4: name, Texas turnaround.
3: It sounds like a type of poker. It does. Yes, it does, yes. I, I personally find those events far too large. I much prefer the Utah Symposium, which is, that right? is kind of capped at around 500 or 600. And mm-hmm. you get a chance to meet people I think uh,
4: again, having met them once uh, I think that that is nice about going to those events. You get to see the same faces again and you start to forge friendships. But it seems like turning uh, suits the modern lifestyle where people, it's tough to take a whole entire furniture making shop with you when you switch homes and and switch jobs. People do more of that these days and a lot of folks getting into retirement. It's easier to sort of have a bandsaw and a lay than you've got your complete turning set up there with you with some sharpening gear seems like a more portable hobby than some... Oh,
3: possibly, yes, but you if you've got a decent lathe, it weighs close on a third of a ton. So <laughs> That's it, true. So, uh, speaking of that, what kind of a lathe
4: uh, do you think people need to get started to, in turning?
3: I think that the the the, the wrong turn people tend to make is that they buy an inexpensive lathe to start with, and uh, if it's not properly constructed, which many of them aren't, uh, they never get a chance to experience turning as it could be. So too much, the basic chatter, bit advice, too much skittering yeah. around. Yeah. So I, mean, I made the same mistake myself. I bought a, um, it was a coronet in those days and, uh, that's an instrument, Richard. A uh, c- coronet, is it? It's oh. a paper towel as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> Clarinet, whatever, yes. Yeah. The coronet lay. Anyway, I went through three headstock bearings in about as many months. Right. Um, the rests broke when I had big catches. Um, it was just a, a, an unmitigated disaster. And then I got a Harrison graduate, which was wonderful, and actually not much more expensive. Mm-hmm. But these days, you've, you've got the... Um, the good introductory manufacturers would, with good basic lathes, people like Nova, Jet, um, mm-hmm. the, the little Vickmark, look- which I'm working on now. So you're looking for something cast iron. Mm-hmm. Um, you want solid rests. You don't need huge capacity. Um, I bought the, my first lathe because I, I saw a picture of a guy turning a four-foot tabletop. Well, <laughs> I've only once ever made anything more than twenty-four yeah. inches diameter, and that was such a sobering experience. I've never bothered to go near it <laughs> again, apart from the fact: what do you do with anything two feet diameter? You, yeah. you can't put it anywhere in most houses.
4: That's a lot of nacho um, cheese and chips, and well, yeah. yes,
3: and there's a lot of macho turning, you know, and you yeah. need huge lumps of wood and a forklift to get the wood onto the lathe and that kind of thing. But mm. the um, so, if you're going for a new lathe, you get want to get something small and really well built, cast. Iron, heavy as you can manage as it heavy as you can afford heavy, right heavy, heavy as you can
4: afford really yeah. and does it help to put it on a base and load some sandbags into yep, the base all that helps
3: mm-hmm. but the, um, the bottom line is to remember is that if you get a good lathe one of the, uh, the good brand names so I suppose in this country um, you've got robust Powermatic obviously um, Vic Mark is the Australian one uh, Nova is pretty good mm-hmm. um, if you buy those, you're never going to lose money on them mm-hmm. and the right. uh, yeah, Laguna now also have a very nice new lathe so out, you're talking sure. about not about the
4: you're talking about something that's more than five hundred bucks, but probably less than a thousand
3: uh you can get in for around a thousand you can get a pretty good lathe and mm-hmm. it'll allow you to turn stuff up to a foot diameter i mean you can yeah that's pretty uh, once you start getting above a foot it's it's a pretty big bowl. Yeah, uh, if you're doing bowls, um, most of the small stuff you do is less than a foot diameter, yeah. and if you're doing little boxes or candlesticks, or
4: certainly all the toys in this all,
3: book. yep, are there all, all the toys in the book? Um, bar one lot, um, uh, you can do on a on a baby lathe. Really, uh, mm-hmm. they're all well less than ten we'll inch diameter. P- we'll
4: put links to uh, Richard's books and articles and in the blog like post for this podcast. The, yeah,
3: yeah. I, I'm kind of
0: curious. What is the um on a less expensive, or let's just say poorly manufactured lathe,
3: what's generally the part that
0: goes when you get a nasty
3: catch? It's not so much the part that goes; is that uh, I mean, I've had students turn up with lathes to workshops where, for instance, when you tighten the tailstock for center work, the headstock moves sideways um, because it's made of sheet metal. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now you never—it doesn't matter how good the chuck is or anything—you're uh, on a hiding to nothing with anything like that. Right. Yeah. Um,
4: it's a simple tool, really. When it comes, it, is, down it to should
3: it. be a very basic tool. But my word, people are managing to make them complicated <laughs> these days. You know? I mean,
4: it's a simple tool in the sense that you want just a few things from it, but you want those things to be very solid, very, very solid, massy, very good, yeah. very good bearings. I mean. Right, what it actually, you know, headstock, tailstock, bed, tool rest on a banjo. Yep. I mean, there's not much to it, but the more solid all of those things can be, yes. the happier you and are. And if
3: you're not sure what to get, I mean, in most books, and I think in all of mine, there is a description of what you're looking for when you buy a lathe. Mm. Because if you don't have that, and the other thing then are the tools, where people make a mistake yeah. where they... Maybe this is what you're going to ask me. Will it it, it yeah, is. I was in the lineup. Well, there you are. You then. did get a glimpse. No, you I did didn't get a glimpse. glimpse. You turned it right over, but I'll yeah. have a look now. <laughs> but the um, people garden buy a set of cheap um, tools, which mostly are Chinese, but not invariably. Right. Um, and what's uh, the problem there? The quality of the uh, steel. The quality of the steel is just not up to it, and um, often the high. They might have high speed stamped on it, but mm-hmm. they're not necessarily is that, right? that high speed. Or if yeah. they are, it's one which doesn't hold an edge. Yeah. So my basic, in, unless you're buying in, again, in, in the U.S., yeah, um, you've got Thompson and uh, D-Way tools. But the only two I can really think of doing the mainstream line of tools and otherwise buy Sheffield, and I think that's or There's P&N, which is the Australian ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Sheffield tools uh, and people like Sorby's, Henry Taylor, Hamlet. Um, those three probably have eighty or ninety percent of the really top tool market tied mm-hmm. up.
4: Yeah, and it's probably one of those things where you get what you pay for. Absolutely, with yes. tools. So, aside from getting a lathe that's too light and flimsy, and buying tools with poor steel, what are some of the other mistakes? Let's talk technical. Technically, you know uh, that beginners. Make um, it could be having something to do with the equipment, but also technique-wise. What are the things? What are the places where beginners and intermediates go wrong?
3: Well, you need to you need to understand why tools catch mm. to start with. Um, so it's basically the wood bearing down on an unsupported edge. Yeah. Um, which are always the most dramatic uh, with skew chisels. People have a go with a skew chisel, and there's a bang, and they never go near the skew again, which is a real pity because it's a terrific tool to use, mm-hmm. and the catches aren't dangerous. They just mess up the wood generally. Yeah. If you want a dangerous catch, you put a scraper onto a thin bowl, and that's going to explode on you or yes. at least rule the whole thing. And all my worst accidents, bar two, I think, have been um, involving fairly thin bowls at the last minute when I thought everything was okay and just being careless with the tool. Mm-hmm. Or, and the ones I've watched are usually people bringing in a tool at the wrong angle mm. and just too much wood in contact with too much edge at once. Yeah, the skew chisels a tricky
4: one because of the way you ride the bevel and the way it, you're sort of balancing between the heel and the toe. and But there's, a, there's some skill involved for sure.
3: Oh, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> a bit of skill. A <laughs> little bit and a little bit of practice. But uh, once mm-hmm. I'm in the in the toy video, which we're just making now, uh, we're going to have a little section on how to catch a skew whenever you want to, you see. So, you um, mean sort of and so catch I, it in midair? So, um, <laughs> no, if you, have a, if you have a really nasty catch which messes up the wood, and if you understand how it works so that you can catch the tool literally whenever you want to. Oh, right? I see. When you say... You know, catch a tool. Oh, I can catch a tool. To which I would always say, "Yeah, but can you do it when you want to?" You see. Right. And so, So if you if you learn how to catch the tool, then hopefully you can avoid it. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And it and And maybe not be afraid of it as much. No, well, not at all. I mean, because um, once you understand it, then um, you wouldn't bother to get a roughing gouge, for instance. If you're doing small, smaller spindles, you just Mm -hmm. rough down with a skew chisel. It's so much faster and. Mm -hmm just the one tool you need.
0: So. You had mentioned something to me on the telephone when we spoke in preparation for all of these videos that are being shot right now about um, the new uh, carbide tip turning tools. You had said two things. One I think was that you weren't a you weren't a fan but number two was that it's not really that new a technology which it, it seems that you know a lot of folks are marketing it as you know this is the Best newest technology. Well, they're turning right.
4: in a different way. They're not riding the bevel. Right. They're just plunging
3: No, it no, straight they're in. just plunging them in. Well, um, we've had scrapers for oh, probably a couple of hundred years. It's, a glorified, it's, a, it's a, a glorified scraper. Yeah. Yeah. It is a scraper. Um, and there are certainly videos out there with um, the scraping tools which purport to do everything. Um, but I think I've yet to see uh, a picture of a good surface off the tool. Right. They, you you see them turning away, and then the implication is that all you need is a bit of 320 grit, and that's it. Yeah, um, but you have a bit. You have a m- lot of sanding to do. But I've you know when you've got an ear tuned to what uh, smoothly cut wood sounds like, you know I know they're in there with 80 grit or 60 or something like that.
4: Yeah, and then you're going to yeah. have. You won't, you'll lose all your crisp detail. and
3: oh No, you don't have crisp detail right. with those tools generally. Right. No.
4: So you wouldn't even have it to lose it.
3: No. That's right. No. And, uh, and they're really not good for center work uh, because they'll just generally tear the grain off.
4: Right, right, um, for, because of the way the grain's running through the piece. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, but it, but it does make turning easier to start with for folks. Um, you think it, maybe there's a place for it, for say a furniture maker who only turns the rare
3: knob or... No, because you'll... No. <laughs> not no, even there? No, no. Mm-hmm. No, it's... Um, you'd you'd probably use a gouge. You'd be much safer yeah. using a gouge and get a better... and actually get a good result. Mm-hmm. The carbide stays sharp though. That's a upsize. uh Reasonably sharp, but not... It, not it's as not sharp, sharp enough to get a really nice that's right um a really nice burr and a really nice surface off the tool How so they're th- very good for i mean if if i was rough hollowing uh, deep bowls, things like that. Then you can use those tools and just plunge in to hog out a bunch. Hog of... Hog out the stuff. Yeah. Yep.
4: So, what is your preferred method of sharpening? Do you go straight off a bench grinder right to the work?
3: I'm yes. I use the CBN wheels now, which I've I've been using for just about a year. Is and that one uh, of these friable kind of? Um, no, it's 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 a steel wheel, and it's got. What um, do you mean steel it's, wheel? It's, it's actually f- steel. It's a steel wheel with a coating of what's it called? Q- uh, cubic boron nitride or something like I really oh, I really don't know. know what it's called but some sort of mineral it looks like a diamond but isn't it something mm-hmm. else but super hard and they hard. grind fairly cool um instead of having um uh normally you would kind of rough grind on something like a 40 grit and then maybe finish on a 60 to 80 um, these are 180. I think they're rated kind of 180 to 240 And it's a one-step process. You don't have to do one the rougher grits. No, you just go. Once you've got your tools the right shape, you go on, and um, the wheel never changes shape. So you can set up jigs. Wow. And and just and and when, that's does it the forever. abrasive wear out eventually? Um, I only know of one guy who says he's had to replace wheels and he's doing it commercially in enormous quantities. Of Sounds a lot making. like
4: how a diamond plate can work for
3: sharpening. Yeah, but I, th- I believe you don't use diamond on, um, on, on steel because it, uh, steel blocks up the, oh, does it? uh, the grits on the diamond. So mm-hmm. this is something else. Although I know turners who do do use the um, diamond wheels. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I I haven't even heard of it. The real advantage of these is uh, they've been around industry forever, and the the turners have been a bit kind of backward. Probably borrowed from the
4: machinist industry or some other industry, which is what normally happens with these tools.
3: But if you go online for CBN wheels, there are zillions of shapes. CBN, cubic, boric, whatever whatever it is. Whatever it is, yes. (laughs) And... um, Yes, now if I'd had noticed of that question, I could have had the right answer for I you. I know so. we
4: sound, yeah, that's all right. CBN, we'll look find.
3: them up and we'll we'll
0: send a link out in the blog. For yeah, it sounds really, uh, but really it's, it's
3: it 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 is the way to go. And um, again, you can uh, the uh, the only people I know who I think are think of selling them at the moment here. You'll look in the um, the ads in the wood turning press anyway um, craft supplies in utah keep them, and uh, D-Way um, in seattle keep and them. you like
4: the 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 some of the better jigs that are out there like the the uh, wolverine sort of thing. do you use that at uh, all?
3: i don't use any of them or i've i've well, you've got I've, the hand I've, skills I've got a composite them. jig at the moment mm-hmm. and starting to use this much harder wheel uh, unlike the more friable wheels which change shape the whole time mm-hmm. i have started to use a jig um, but it's is it's that, a, it's a composite from. Is that a bla- Is that others.
4: blasphemy that Richard Raffin is using a No, no, no.
3: It's a sen- <laughs> it's a it's a sensible thing to do. I uh-huh. mean, I'm the. I, I think I was going to say notorious. Um, it's probably yeah, it's almost the right word. <laughs> my my edges never look that nice, but they do work. Yeah, so. yeah. So
4: you can you can sort of. Uh, you've got an, You do it f- frequently enough that you can freehand sort of a fingernail grind yes. and stuff like that. Yes, I but, don't
3: mean my edges look bad. Actually, it's the it's the bevels which look bad. But um, right. But the provided the bevels pretty well flat to concave. That's mm-hmm. fine. And then the the actual. Uh, kind of micro bevel just underneath the edge, provided there 's at least an eighth of an in inch of that mm-hmm. I always find that works quite well so. So, you,
4: hmm, so you actually sharpen in two passes, just like we do a plane blade, you sharpen you shape the overall bevel, like and a then primary you put a, bevel and then and a, you put a little micro for, bevel well on
3: I, it. I, I always try and get a single bevel, but mm-hmm. um, when wheels get smaller um, for much of my turning career i I started off with a six inch wheel, which soon came down to four <laughs> so you the angle you, changes. You do not have a single flashing bevel off a wheel that size because the edge is just going to break. Yeah. So the real advantage of the CBN wheels, and I have uh, one which is 8-inch uh, diameter and 40-mil wide, which is what, about inch and three-quarters, I think. Um, and that's going to stay that size, it's, and it's just mm. wonderful. Mm. And I will be getting another one because I need something to do coarse grinding with. So I'll I'll get one of their eighties and that'll did you get right?
4: Off. did you come right off the plane and come straight to to Newtown and Yep. And are yep. you gonna do anything fun before you head home?
3: This is fun. Well, of course this is fun. <laughs> That's true. This is, so this is Well, it. maybe not this particular talk, but um, <laughs> No making videos is it's a nice break. Um but um I don't actually go home and do a whole lot of turning because so. I've Done very little turning in the last twelve years. Is Wait a minute! Way? What does Richard Rathen do with himself nowadays? Oh, well, he does bits of sailing and bits of other stuff. I'm um, mm-hmm. writing bits and pieces, and um, so you're semi-retired, you would say? Uh, yes,
4: excellent. I gotta Sounds say, good. how do, that's the next uh, how to we need is how do you retire at your age? That's well, fantastic. I have
3: actually wondered about writing a book on that. I must say, <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's the one thing I noticed about turning watching Richard turn the uh, the goblet yesterday. So he's hollowing out the. You know the interior of the goblet. Mm-hmm. It's a hell of a workout, and yeah. I'm noticing that that was a nasty hard bit of ingrained
3: cherry. Right yeah. now, yeah.
0: You're, you're my father's age, and he's probably twice as well built as my dad. Yeah, which so like if you watch somebody who turns a lot, mm-hmm. there's a good Do amount of the upper
4: big body strength. Popeye forearms? Is that what you're talking about? The, the yeah, in better shape than I am. Yeah, <laughs> well, we're we don't want to get him angry. I think is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> So far, so good. You wouldn't good. like him when he's angry. Well, th- <laughs> thanks for uh, hanging out with us for a little bit. I know uh, it was tough to drag you out of the shop, but I think we appreciate it.
3: My reluctance for interviews, that was. <laughs> yeah, is good? that right? No, I've not, not so bad as I thought it would yeah, be. Yeah, I That's told good. you yes. when we came in. And now in. I can look at the rest of the questions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Piece of cake. Thanks, Richard. Cheers.
0: So the most interesting thing about Richard uh, is the fact that he literally just Fell uh, into turning um, through a, I don't know, chance decision. Like, oh yeah, I'll try that. Um, made in conjunction with his potting sister, um, which I just thought was, God, talk about heavens aligning. Um, yeah, that's by a pretty pure cool chance
1: origin story.
0: Indeed. Yes. Um, but uh, anyhow, so remember, if you want uh, the lathe that Richard used all this week in all these videos, um, you can. It's up for purchase. We're not making a dime off it, but we're Opening it up to readers to purchase his lathes, so uh, send an email to shoptalk at taunton dot com. Maybe you can throw in stuff that he's been turning this week. Oh, I might. Th- you know what? I might. Yes, I might throw a little something in there. I don't know. I'd have to ask him though. All I right. can't just do it. Kind of, maybe we some, can. Some shavings. I'll try. We, we I'll can try. Throw but, in
1: something that I've turned. <laughs> <laughs> it's the dead that's air I expected. <laughs> <laughs> or, or crickets. <laughs> um,
0: I, I can't guarantee that, but I will try to do that. Uh, but I'm definitely going to get him to sign the lathe. Um, it, it won't be, can't be dedicated to anybody because he's going back to uh, Australia on Sunday. But it'll at least be signed by the master himself, and it's <laughs> the one he used. It's kind of cool. Uh, anyhow, so let's uh, let's move on to our next question of the day, and that's from Trevor. And Trevor wrote, "I love what," and this is. Wait a minute. This is a very apropos question for our former California native, uh, Mike Pekovich here. Um, Sir, I am disgusted by your birth
2: date. Okay. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Please do.
1: You weren't born in California. Were you born in Montana?
2: No. I was born in uh, Arcadia, California.
1: Oh, okay. Well, there's a big high school track meet there every year. <laughs>
2: That's incredible, Pod. Um,
0: so Trevor wrote, I love Waterlox as a finish, but I'm unable to purchase it in Southern California, even the low VOC version. Can you provide a recipe for an alternative, similar finish? Now, Mike, enlighten us. What the heck is up with California that I can't even order the stuff online from another state and have it shipped to me? How dare they?
2: How dare they, sir? I don't know, but I have noticed like every time you get a, a tool or something like that, it can be a hand plane, but there's always that little piece of paper in there that yep. says known to cause cancer in California. Yeah, everything. Everything.
1: Yeah. I'm never moving to California Me because you will get cancer I'm as soon as you move there. there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: Waterlox, um, yeah, it, it's it's a nice product. A lot of us use that, but really, um, Waterlox is basically, um, it's not a miracle finish. It belongs to a class of finishes that I call a wiping varnish, meaning. Um, you, you can It's thin enough to wipe on, but unlike in an oil-based finish like a Danish oil or linseed oil, if you put it on too thick, it won't dry. Uh, wiping varnish, you can wipe it on, let it go, it'll dry. Um, so really you can make your own by just getting any sort of brushing varnish and thinning it down by 50% or so with the mineral spirits. Thin enough that you can wipe it on and it'll level out and not streak, and that'll dry and that'll be fine. You can also get other types of finishes that'll do the same thing, a, uh, a min, uh, Minwax, a wipe on poly. And there's like antique oil. Isn't that a uh, – Minwax antique oil. Now, a lot of these things might be tough to get in California as well because the thing that, that makes them a tough sell from the environment standpoint are this, the solvents that evaporate. So um, a wiping varnish has basically a fairly higher ratio of thinners to it as opposed to solids, which is why it's thin and you can wipe it on, um, which is why if you buy a can of varnish or something like that, you read the back, it says do not thin. It's not saying that because it won't work if you thin it. It's saying that because if you add thinner to it, you increase the amount of solvents that – off-gas and in essence Uh, basically make it not as green of a product let me break out my world's tiniest violin
1: I used to before I came to the magazine I used to make my own wiping varnishes I would just get like in South Carolina they really don't care about anything like the environment or yeah. you your oil puppies, yes, you would grind that. up puppies and turn those into a varnish. <laughs> now you could get you know some kind of I, I you most people call them oil varnishes, but I guess it's an alkyd based varnish, I don't know a petroleum based okay. varnish, sure, you know, and I would mix that with mineral spirits, and that was fantastic.
0: that's fine, yeah, yeah, okay well, well Trevor actually sent us two questions, and his second question is. Um, let's see, it's regarding dust collection, and it was inspired by our article titled Soup Up Your Dust Collector from Issue 232. So here's what he says. If one was to add a Thane baffle now, and later add the first stage cyclone to his system, is it recommended that you remove the Thane baffle, uh, or can the two be used simultaneously? It costs virtually nothing to add the baffle immediately, but based on how effective my dust deputy is when used in conjunction with my shop vac? I'd love to add an Oneida Cyclone option later on when I can afford it. So basically he's saying, I'm gonna get this inexpensive baffle set up, which works pretty well, and you know, it's what I can afford right now. But when I have more money later on, I want to get a slightly better system and but I don't want to have wasted my money on this baffle. Can I just use them both and get even more awesome dust and chip collection?
2: What's the deal? Well, both of the things work. They they work really well by <clears throat> Um, they both do a good job of keeping the fine dust particles off of your filter. And that's what really compromises the the suction capacity of your um, dust collection. Suction capacity. I just made that up because I couldn't <laughs> think of the proper term. Um, the airflow. <clears throat> thank you, Matt. Yeah. Um, however, um, that comes at a price in that each of these things, they do reduce the initial suction capacity to begin (laughs) with. Um, However, they they lower it initially, but that level stays about the same level because the dust doesn't get impacted in the filter. Now, both of them, because they do cause a slight drop-off, you don't want to combine the two together because you're not really getting improved performance, but what you are doing is reducing the initial suction capacity. What'd you call it? Airflow. It's just airflow. Thank you. Okay.
1: (laughs) I know it's a really (laughs) tough, you know, scientific jargon word there.
2: Airflow. Airflow. Okay. Um, So yeah. uh, Just used one of them. Just
1: one. And there was, we had the article. And the fine
2: baffles, really, it's just a piece of, like, MDF or plywood with a little slot Mm -hmm. in it that you shove inside there. It disrupts the vertical column of air and keeps the dust off the filter.
1: I don't recall the exact findings of that article, but did we find that one of those performed better than the other? There was an inverse
0: relationship, if I recall correctly. Like, one had more airflow, but the... Filter would clog more quickly, and then the other one was the opposite. It was something like that because there was a little sidebar in the article. Uh,
1: so I would. They should go. But this person, should, uh, Trevor, should go back and read this article. Yeah, in because issue we talk about both of them and their performance Correct. together. And you know, if the Thane Baffle performs, they were comparable. They were comparable. Then I don't know why. If you're going to make it, why replace it? You know, maybe you'll find you just like it.
2: Yeah, actually, you know our buddy Dean, who did, uh, who wrote in the question about does the plasticizers from your pads affect your finishes? Mm-hmm. He actually put a wok inside of his dust collector. To, oh yeah, to act as that same well, sort of. That's what's thing. like in
1: mind. I have that that uh,
2: jet the vortex. vortex. It's, yeah.
1: yeah, it's like a wok in there. Waka a a. It's like a wok in the desert.
0: Oh. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> All right, guys. Oh well, wait a minute! I had something. Oh else. yeah. Okay, professor.
1: Uh, No, I can't remember what it was. Never mind.
0: Fascinating, Matt. (laughs) All right, guys, we got lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store. And as you all know, every week we like to acknowledge the kind folks who leave words of encouragement up there. So here we go for this week. Jeffrey D. Smith wrote, I love the podcasts and enjoy the humor and banter. I'm new to podcasts and found this a while back and am now almost caught up with all the shows. I always learn something from you guys and look forward to listening in my shop and in my vehicle.
1: I mean, I thought we were supposed to stop being funny and having fun.
0: Uh, well, some folks do uh, believe we should take that tact. Um, <laughs> but not this guy. The minute we start doing that, though, I'm going to be put to sleep. Uh, the next comment comes in from D. 270 and he wrote... You Your
1: pod- just, which, which one of the Star Wars episodes was he in? Beep, 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 beep.
0: <laughs> Your podcasts are the best of the best. How about stepping it up a notch to once a week? Um, Warren, if we did that, I would die of a heart attack. <laughs> uh, and finally, JB wrote, wish it were a weekly. Damn it.
1: You know, uh,
0: great show. Like of a bunch of guys. My kind of people. With that, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on November 1st for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody.
2: And that's what really compromises the, the suction capacity of your um, dust collection. Suction capacity. I just made that up because I couldn't think of the proper term. <laughs>